Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale, a podcast where we are dissecting a triple murder that took place in 1960 in the Star of Rock State Park, a horrible crime for which my client, Chester Weger, was convicted and spent over 60 years in prison. Today we're going to talk about what happened in the park, what happened to the women, how they were killed, and when they were killed, because there are a lot of discrepancies in the timeline and the evidence. Let's begin. Now as your search moves out from here, you will be looking for a man who is a a sex criminal of some type, I would imagine? That's right. I think he would have to be. Have you had anything like this in the past here in this area in Star Rock? Not for a long, long time in the county. You think that this uh, person could still be here in this area? He could possibly be. We're checking out uh, that uh, possibility. Around 10 o'clock in the morning of Monday, March 14, 1960, 50-year-old Lillian Oding, 50-year-old Mildred Lindquist, and 47-year-old Francis Murphy the wives of prominent businessmen from the affluent Chicago suburb of Riverside, Illinois, packed their suitcases into the back of Lillian Oding's Cadillac station wagon and drove out of town. Their destination, the Starve Rock Lodge. About two and a half hours later, they arrived in the hotel lobby. Desk clerk Esther Eikhoff checked the three women in. After a bellhop showed the ladies to their rooms, Miss Eikhoff recalled that at approximately 12.45, They returned to the front desk to claim their lunch vouchers, planning to eat in the dining room. This is the last moment in the official timeline of events where there isn't debate as to the women's whereabouts. This is where the mystery begins. The official story is that the women ate lunch and then around 1.45 went for a walk in the woods. The exact timing of when the women left the lodge and walked towards their desk is frustratingly unclear. No one seemed to notice that they never came back from their walk in the woods or that they weren't at breakfast the next morning. Or did they? When Herman Oding, Lillian's husband, called on Tuesday mid-morning inquiring about his wife, he was told by whoever answered the phone that the women were seen at breakfast and must be hiking in the park. By the evening of Tuesday, March 15th, a thick snowpack covered the Starve Rock State Park. It was one of the coldest nights on record. Herman Oding called the lodge, now concerned that he had not heard anything from his wife. Esther Eikhoff, the same woman who had checked the women in the day before, took his call. She claimed she wrote down his message to his wife asking her to call home and put the message in her room box. It was now Wednesday, March 16th. Herman Oding demanded that the hotel staff check the women's quarters. When the staff unlocked the door, they found the beds made and the suitcases still packed. Upon learning this news, Mr. Oding demanded the authorities be notified, and he immediately called the husbands of the other two women, Robert Murphy and Robert Lindquist. The official sequence of events gets even fuzzier. According to the testimony of Terry Martin, the State Park custodian, he was standing by the front desk clerk at approximately 8.20 a.m. when the phone rang and it was Robert Murphy asking about his wife and her travel companions. Martin claimed he saw Miss Eikhoff pull the women's hotel record and said it looked as if the three women had eaten breakfast in the lodge on Tuesday the day before. By 9 o'clock a.m., Terry Martin had assembled a search party that consisted of an assistant park custodian 
and a group of juvenile delinquents from the Illini camp for boys in nearby Marseille, Illinois. Henry Wolford, one of the wardens from the youth camp, arrived with six boys around noon. The station wagon they were piled into got stuck in the snow not far from the mouth of the St. Louis Canyon. With the vehicle hopelessly stuck in a foot of slush, Henry Wolford and the boys set out on foot, trudging towards the canyon. Little did they know that they would happen upon the horrifying scene of the frozen and bloodied bodies of the three women displayed in the caves below the frozen waterfall. Three women, mothers and wives, were found displayed, spread eagle in a frozen cave, their faces beaten beyond recognition, their hands tied, their underclothes pulled down. This was the moment the panic began. So Whitney, one of the things that I want to start with is fundamentally, when were the women last seen? And what's kind of surprising to me is all the different versions you have from the waitress or the custodian or the bellhop, like kind of surprised it's so confusing and inconsistent. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. You know, I guess there's, there's two ways to look at it. One is that no one cared enough to log into memory what these women's activities were and 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 human memory is fallible. My other thought, and maybe it just goes to a more sinister place, is were people specifically attempting to kind of tell a different narrative? I guess that's that's my other that's that's my other sort of more sinister place that my mind goes. Is is what why is why is there so much uh, inconsistency between every single person's eyewitness account? Well I'll tell you one thing, you know under the Chester Weaver confession story, the murders take place on Monday afternoon after lunch, right? So that's the official Chester Weger version is Chester Weger killed these women Monday after lunch. So if you're going to support that theory, you have to stick to that timeline that the women left the lodge Monday after lunch and were never seen again. But here's, here's a huge but that I think is lost in the shuffle. When Mr. Odin calls, one of the times he calls on Tuesday, he is told, it's in the record, he's told the women had breakfast that morning, Tuesday morning. Yeah. All right, so let, let's just pause there. He is told, they check the records, and he's told the women had breakfast this morning, being Tuesday. Like, why is that not a huge, huge point? Well, I think that the reason that it got dismissed and... uh you know, this this was the the common understanding of the Starve Rock Lodge was that it was a phenomenally convenient place to go and have affairs and conduct business that you didn't want other people to know about. And so the staff were supposedly instructed to provide cover whenever anyone called, to provide plausible deniability and cover. Uh, that was apparently, you know, the, the, their modus operandi. But what would the cover be? What would telling a husband that his wife had breakfast on Tuesday morning achieved. So that sort of undermines that being a plausible explanation. Yeah, that's, that's a real stretch to me because I could understand that if people at the lodge saw these women having drinks with other guys or, or like it looked like they were down there, you know, like these are three women in their 50s down there to go nature hiking you got a concerned husband calling and say, hey, look, 
I haven't heard from my wife. You know, I mean, it's, it's, he knows she's at the Starve Rock Park on a hike. So it's not like he's calling the lodge just suspecting that she ran off for the day to the lodge. <laughs> See, I mean, that makes sense yeah. if you're like, you don't, you don't know where she's at. He knows she's staying there as a guest and he hasn't heard from her. So if you call concerned on Tuesday night and somebody pulls the records and checks and says they had breakfast this morning, what, they got that wrong? I mean, that's, that's what has to be. They, they had to have gotten that wrong. And what I just think gets lost in the shuffle when people put together the chronology is that it is in the record factually that Mr. Odin is told Tuesday night that the women had breakfast Tuesday morning. So I just think that's a colossal point that conveniently gets swept under the rug by everybody in their rush to judgment to just say Chester Weger committed this crime. Well, and then what that also does is it sets up a domino effect because if if the timeline is off, then everyone whose alibi placed them somewhere else on the afternoon of Monday afternoon is now a suspect again. Right. So they eliminated people who alibied out potentially for the wrong timeline. Right. And I think that to me is what is most concerning because because the list of suspects got knocked down on the assumption that the murders were between one and three in the afternoon on Monday. Right. And so I think this applies, we're going to get into this later. I think this applies to, for instance, when George Spiros is, uh, is questioned uh, and he's questioned about what he was doing on Monday in his alibi for Monday. Okay. Maybe he did add an alibi for Monday. Did he have one for Tuesday? Yeah. Did the other people have an alibi for Tuesday? I mean, we focused on Monday, Monday, Monday. Maybe it wasn't Monday. Maybe it was Tuesday. And what did people have to say about Tuesday? They probably weren't even asked about Tuesday, yeah. you know? So I think, I think there's just a crucial issue right at the get-go about when the women were last seen that creates some real doubt in the official narrative, you know, the Chester Uyghur version narrative of when these women were last seen. And I'll also point out to you, if you look at that photograph that was taken of the victims, you know, in the camera, the clothing does not completely jive with the clothing described in the autopsy report. Mm -hmm. I know from looking back at this, for instance, one of the scarves the women were wearing, I forget which one it was, I'd have to go back and look at my notes. It was completely inconsistent with the description in the autopsy uh, compared to the one in the photo. And that is another thing that just raised a question in my mind. It looks like the clothing being worn wasn't consistent with the clothing being described in the autopsy. Again, you know, that's an issue that is potentially huge that was never flushed out. Whitney, there are two big issues that cast serious doubt on the notion the women were killed on Monday, and it has to do with their clothing. Let's first talk about, we have four separate witnesses who see the women on Monday, and all four say one of the women in the group was wearing slacks. Arnold Daly, a truck driver, says he sees the women on Monday, and one woman's wearing slacks. Miss Harbeck and Virginia Stokowiak saw the women on Monday, said one of the women in the group was wearing slacks. And Emil Bohm, who worked at the lodge, saw the woman leave the lodge Monday afternoon and said one of the women was wearing slacks. We know from the autopsy report and the evidence and the crime scene photos, none of the women were wearing slacks when they were found. I mean, this, this is a huge, huge point. And secondly, with the clothing, uh, is their scarves. So we had 
photos recovered from the camera of the victims that the official narrative is these are photos taken shortly before they were murdered, okay? Well, it shows Miss Lindquist wearing a white scarf. The autopsy report for her says she's wearing a brown scarf. Uh, the photograph shows Miss Murphy with a, a dark scarf. Uh, her autopsy report makes no mention of a scarf. So we've got these two really huge issues with the women's clothing and the four witnesses that cast serious, serious doubt on the official narrative that the women were killed on Monday. I mean, there, there was so much that just, it seemed like was just taken for granted. The assumption was that uh, the women were last seen by most people, by most people, it doesn't mean all people, on Monday afternoon. So the immediate assumption was, okay, they're last seen Monday afternoon, they must have died Monday afternoon. But even that wasn't really fully investigated because as we know, that was the coldest March on record. So those bodies were were out in a cave in, in sub-zero temperatures um, for potentially up to three days, but it could have been less. But there isn't a way to necessarily gauge, at least there wasn't in 1960, there wasn't a way for them to gauge exactly how long they had been deceased. So this assumption was just made right. that, oh, it was Monday afternoon and they were killed between the hours of one and maybe four. But uh, between, you know, there's a three-hour window of time where they were likely killed. And let me ask you this. You know, I am Chester's attorney. I obviously, you know, have, have read the record. But you, as one of the producers for HBO and kind of the head researcher, really, really dove into all the details and uh, assembled all the minutiae and dates and times and things. So you really are the expert on the details. So I want to ask you this. My recollection was there was not definitive documented evidence of the condition of the women's room. So like, it seems to me like there should have been, and if, if there was, tell me, I don't remember seeing it, that, oh, housekeeper, you know, Mary Jones went in the room. She said everything, the beds weren't slept in. We took photographs and she testified at the trial. And, you know, like, shouldn't we have been able to document exactly how the rooms were? Who found them and what they saw? Is that in the record anywhere? Uh, no. And that's that's always something that's bothered me is that maybe the practice was different in 1960, but in a fine hotel as the Starved Rock Lodge was in 1960, you would have more housekeeper activity. You know, I mean, housekeepers come and they check and they knock on the doors and they ask if you want turn down service and they clean, you know, in between evenings. And there isn't any of that. It appears as though the women check in and then there's just absolutely uh, no attention paid to them from that point on. So the women check in. It's not until after the husbands call and say, hey, where are our wives? Or it's really Mr. Mr. Oding who calls and says, where's my wife? That then three housekeepers are sent up to check on the room. And they say, everything in the room looks fine. Everything in the room looks normal. They say that the bags are not unpacked. But then here's the inherent contradiction. They go on to say the hiking clothes are laid out in the drawers. So if the hiking clothes are laid out in the drawers, would you not have had to unpack the bag? So it's it's troubling to me. And it's a very vague accounting of the state of the room. And I don't understand why there wouldn't be a report from housekeeper one, housekeeper two, and housekeeper three being interviewed to say, 
I went in the room at this time and this is what I found or pictures being taken, photos being taken. You know, I mean, I, at least from what I saw, there was very little to no formal, thorough documentation about who checked the rooms, when they checked the rooms and what they found. I would have expected more from that. So I think that always kind of raised a little bit of an eyebrow with me as well. Well, and I guess there's two two questions I have is if I'm managing a hotel and I and I get a call from a concerned husband who says I haven't I haven't heard from my wife and it's now been three days three days since she checked into your hotel I don't know that if I'm uh, the custodian of that hotel and that park that my mind wouldn't be racing and going oh no there's women lost in the woods and it's been the three coldest days on record we should do something immediately to find them because this is dangerous mm-hmm. but it seems like there is this very casual sort of laissez-faire attitude of oh there's some women missing it's probably not a big deal let's get the boys from the juvenile delinquent camp and oh they can't come until noon but you know when they come, We'll start a search. It's a very strange, casual approach to a missing person case. The other part that I thought was weird was, okay, so they, you got these three women in 1960 doing this women's trip down to the Star of Rock State Park to do this hike. You know, pretty progressive for the time for these three women to be doing this. So they all get to the park, you know, by lunchtime on Monday. And none of the women or none of the husbands, nobody talks Monday night. Like, like, I guess what I'm saying is I would think that they would have, right? Mm-hmm. I would think that, that at least one of the three women would have talked to a family member or a husband Monday night to say, hey, we made it down, had a good trip, had a good first day, went out and did bird watching, whatever. Like the very first night, I think one of the three talks to somebody. And if they did, you know, you probably should have heard about it. And, uh, we don't hear anything about Monday night. We just go to Tuesday night when Mr. Odin calls and says he hasn't heard from anybody. Like, yeah, I just think that's kind of odd how we don't hear anything about Monday at all, you know? So I don't know. And to be clear here, Whitney, what's important about this is, like I said, Chester Weger's confession is that he killed the women on Monday afternoon, okay? So what's important about when the women were last seen is if the women were last seen on Tuesday, if the women had breakfast on Tuesday, as Mr. Odin was told, then Chester Weger could not have killed the women on Monday, and his confession is false. I mean, that's what's so critical about this. I mean, I'm not making this up. It's in the record. Mr. Odin is told Tuesday night that the women had breakfast Tuesday morning, okay? And that that's, this means it is impossible for Chester Weger to have killed these women on Monday. But that I don't, I don't see anything talking about that fact. Nobody's even trying to say, oh, they must have gotten it wrong, whatever. It's just ignored. And it is ignored yeah. and buried. And it is potentially something that completely exonerates Chester Weger. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that it might be easy to chalk up that comment made to Mr. Oding you know, as being, oh, well, the desk clerk was just trying to placate him. Yes, they ate breakfast, you know, yes, sir, everything's fine, go away. But we have a second witness who testifies that they're standing there when that phone call comes in, sees the hotel record being pulled out, and that the official documentation of the hotel actually indicates that they, in fact, had the breakfast. Right. So it's not it's not just a one-sided, casual observation. It's There are two witnesses testifying to this fact. Right. So I just think that 
that fact, what Mr. Odin is told is such a big, big point that is never part of this Chester Weaker debate. And I think it has to be front and center because the fundamental starting point is when were the women last seen and when were they killed? The other thing I want to talk about is the actual discovery of the bodies and where they were found. So you've got these women found in St. Louis Canyon in a cave. And that is significant to me for several reasons. And having been out there, the cave is not like ground level, meaning you don't just walk into the cave. You have to climb up a ledge and get into the cave. And when I went out there, I was actually, I had to do it very slowly because I was worried about falling, slipping, and hurting myself. So you have to have the physical strength. Chester Weger was probably like 135 pounds at the time. The women weighed more than he did. You've got to drag three bodies up this cave one by one, get them into this cave, and drag them back in there. The fact that they're in this cave, and then the thing about it is the bodies are displayed, right? So they are spread out. They are spread-eagled. Their clothing is pulled you know, down from the waist. It is displayed. It looks like a sexual assault, but we know from the autopsy, the women, there was no evidence of a rape. So it's displayed, right? My first point is this. A, I don't think Chester Weger, it would be very difficult for him to get those three women up into that cave. Not saying he couldn't do it, but it would be hard for one person to do it. The second thing is, this is a guy that goes back to work, right? So think of the time this takes to take these women and get them up into that cave and to display the scene the way you're displaying it. I think that makes absolutely no sense. It's this random act of rage, right? It was this botched robbery that went wrong and it leads to an argument where he claims he had to kill the women, okay? Well, he doesn't have to display the bodies in the cave and set up this elaborate crime scene and it doesn't serve him at all. Like doing that does not throw the scent off Chester Weger, right? It just, that doesn't help him at all to go through part two of staging that crime scene. To me, it always seemed like the reason that crime scene was displayed was to throw people off the real reason the women were killed, which I think, uh, and we're going to get into this in later episodes, I think it's more consistent with, with some kind of a premeditated attack. Tell me your thoughts about all that. Well, the way that the bodies are displayed is actually secondary to me to the fact that their faces are obliterated, right? These are three women whose faces are utterly destroyed by this. And so if we operate under the, the principle uh, that Chester committed this crime in a window of time that ran roughly from 1 to 3 p.m. on Monday afternoon, then we have to also assume that he got back to work, had no blood on him, and then just continued washing dishes. I used to be a paramedic, and I will tell you this, that the face is highly vascular. If you struck a blow on someone's face to the degree that these women had blows struck to their faces and multiple ones, you would look like a Jackson Pollock painting. You would have so much blood splatter back on you. And Chester's got none of that. So A, th that evidence is, is tricky to me. B, if it's a random robbery, 
yeah, a random robbery doesn't usually result in a fit of rage that results in, in the absolute destruction of human faces and then to display the bodies. So it's, it's two other levels of inconsistency that don't work for me. No, I think that's an excellent point um, that I forgot to mention in terms of the number of blows. If you read Chester's confession, and I'm using air quotes here, right, his confession, he tries to, he thinks it's a purse, he grabs this purse, but it's actually the camera strap. It leads to an argument it actually leads to them, everybody just kind of agreeing to part ways and walk out of the canyon. Uh, and we're going to get into this more when we dive into the confession. And then one of the women, according to Chester Weger, attacks him. There is no reason, okay, even under uh, an argument, to strike a hundred blows on these women under that scenario. To beat them all beyond recognition, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And then to then drag the bodies one by one into the cave, display them in a certain way, pull their clothes down. None of that helps Uyghur uh, throw the scent off of him. It just completely makes no sense to me uh, what he says is his confession and then how you find the bodies. But I do think it's highly important that the bodies are A, found in the cave, they're bludgeoned beyond recognition, and they are displayed in a way to clearly intentionally depict some kind of a sexual attack. That's clear. It's evident to me that whoever displayed these bodies had a sort of desire for a shock factor. You know, one of the things I want to talk about, too, is the women are found in St. Louis Canyon by a search team of boys four boys from the Marseille youth camp who are teenagers, juvenile delinquents who uh, live in that youth camp. One of the suspects down the road is another boy who was living at that youth camp. We're going to talk about here in Gerald Nemke in a, in a later episode. So I just think it's interesting that there's this link between a potential suspect and the search party that found the women pretty quickly. Uh, it was like their starting point. These boys and their wardens started in St. Louis Canyon and found the bodies in this cave. I think that's an interesting kind of coincidence that needs some discussion. And we're going to talk about that down the road. So you mentioned Jerry Nemke. Uh, Jerry Nemke is one of our, our prime suspects who we'll explore in a later episode. Another name that we're going to be bringing up again and again uh, was probably the first suspect in the case, George Spiros. Now, George Spiros was the lodge owner's son. And one of the reasons that the St. Louis Canyon was searched was because Terry Martin, the uh, the groundskeeper custodian for the state park, had said that earlier in the day, he had seen two dogs that he thought were George Spiros's dogs coming out of the St. Louis Canyon and had thought, well, that's suspicious because George Spiros's dogs were always with him. But didn't bother to search the canyon until many hours later when the boys were sent in. So there's, there's two different ways that the, the finding of the bodies in that particular cave has sort of suspicious circumstances. All right. I've got one more topic I want to talk about in this episode when the women were discovered. And this came to me as kind of a uh, gut punch. I'm reading the autopsy report. And I'm just reading the autopsy report, you know, just kind of as a formality, not thinking there's going to be anything in particular significance in there. I knew the women's you know, we're bludgeoned to death, but I come to Miss Murphy and it says, and I'm reading from the autopsy report 
about one half of the distal phalanx of the left index finger is missing, apparently post-mortem. Let me say that again. One half of the distal phalanx of the left index finger is missing, apparently post-mortem, okay? When I read that, I'm like, what? That made absolutely no sense to me, but I immediately felt it was a incredibly significant point. I had never heard anything about it. I had never heard a discussion about it. And I thought, why on earth would her fingertip be cut off post-mortem? All right, it's cut off with a knife, right? It says sliced off. The women were not stabbed. The women, there's, there's no indications of a knife being used to kill these women. Uh, why on earth would her fingertip be cut off? What does that mean? Who does it? And why? I was just blown away by this innocuous little sentence buried in the autopsy report. And there's no reference to it at trial either. You know, after, after you told me that information, I went back through the trial transcripts and there's no reference to it. All right. So let's play this out. Okay. I mean, let me just, let me just kind of like, just, just play this out. Chester Weger, first of all, under his confession, he kills these three ladies in this fit of rage, right? Doesn't just kill them. He, he elects to choose a hundred blows to do it, right? He doesn't just kill them with five blows or 10 blows. He chooses to do a hundred blows. Then he doesn't just leave. He drags the bodies one by one into the cave. He doesn't just leave. He now pulls their clothing down and has this elaborate plan for how to display the bodies. But he's not done yet. Now he's going to, just Miss Murphy, just Miss Murphy, he's going to take out a knife that apparently is on him that he has not used to kill the women. And he is going to cut off the fingertip of Miss Murphy. Okay? What? What? That, that just, I mean, I could talk about this. I could scream from the top of the tallest mountain. <laughs> that just makes no sense. And again, it is a huge detail that is never discussed. And I always find in the cases I look at, there is always an aha moment. There is always something that at first blush appears super small, super innocuous, inconsequential but is actually of massive importance, the missing fingertip is that aha moment. And I just love this hypothesis that then Chester does all this. Again, he would have to be covered in blood, picks up a severed fingertip, pops it in his pocket, and then goes back to the lodge and washes dishes for the no rest way. of the evening. No way. No way. I, just, I can't it, buy it, that. It, so what we're going to discuss on this podcast moving forward because we're just getting started. We're in episode two. We got a long way to go. We got a lot to talk about. Now that you've heard how the women were killed, where the bodies were found, who found the bodies, who could have done this? Who had the motive? Who had a reason to do it? Why would they do it? Why would it be done in this way? We're going to have a lot to unpack going forward and I'm looking forward to it. Me too.
thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of the Starve Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I was excited to sort of set the table for all of our future discussions. We'll be back next week with another installment. And for more information on today's episode, visit our website, andyhalepodcast.com. We're going to be posting a lot more information, documents, photos, and other things if you want even more detail. And email us if you know anything about the Star of Rock Murders or heard anything about the Star of Rock Murders. Or if you know somebody that you think is wrongfully convicted, reach out. We'd like to hear about it. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis, sound designed by Studio D, and hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.